This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IV Press and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm Akemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? You know, I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing out here. <laughs> I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing. Look, look, rise, shine, give God the glory. It is an early hey. morning, is it not? <laughs> it is. It is. You know, yes. you're doing, I'm being. So that's a good thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, that doing and being culture piece right there. So, hey. so but for real, for real, what, what, what's, what's been on your mind and heart lately? Well, you know, um, truthfully, it's been, obviously, we know it's been a heavy time. We are still... Um, in this pandemic and under quarantine. Um, and so we thought, uh, obviously, as anti-racists at the table, all three of us, Michelle's not with us because we're doing an interview. Y'all know how this goes. Um, we thought it would be important for us to, most importantly, as Christians, um, to show unity, solidarity, um, and bear the burdens as we're instructed to to do in the scriptures of our brothers and sisters. Um, and so we thought we thought it would be good for us to bring um, anti-Asian racism to the table. Um, and we figured that the best way for us to do that was to actually bring our Asian brothers and sisters to the table. Well, look um, at that. This, you know, <laughs> this is not rocket science, y'all. Um, to come to the table to actually talk to us, um, educate us on what is happening um, in their own community right now. So we are honored uh, to have the, um, the really the founders, the, the president, and the, the people that have started the Asian American Christian Collaborative, which is a collaborative by Asian American Christians for Asian American Christians about um, Asian American Christians. Y'all know we are all about that for us, by us, <laughs> life. Um, and so right now at the table, we have Raymond Chang, who is the current president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Um, we also have Michelle Reyes, who is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. And also, y'all, I don't think, we, have we ever had Five people at the table, we have not. But we also have uh, Russell, Russell Jung at the table with us as well. He is a board member, um, the, one of the original drafters of um, the statement we are about to talk about, and a researcher. And so what we are going to be discussing is the anti-Asian um, racism statement in the time of COVID. So welcome to the table, Raymond, Michelle, and Russell. Thanks Hi. so much for having hey, us. Y'all. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Good to have y'all. So since there's so many of us at the table, if y'all could just say your name before you speak, that way the people get acclimated to your voice. Um, but yeah, we wanted to bring you all to the table and just learn from you all and talk to you about why, why now, why um, did you all feel the need for uh, a statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID? Why now? 
Yeah, so, so this is Michelle Reyes, mm -hmm. and this all started la or two, almost two Thursdays ago, March 26th. So Ray and I and a group of Asian American Christians and faith leaders across the country began talking uh, online together about the rise in anti-Asian racism. And that week, one of us had tried speaking up about experienced racism and was called a snowflake for it. And I'm a, so I'm, I'm Indian American as well as a church planter and pastor's mm -hmm. wife. And I've been doing a good bit of counseling lately for fellow Asian American Christians and the racism that they and their families have experienced. And I've, mm. I've been talking with people who've been spit on. Um, wow. I've, I've been talking with moms whose kids have literally been chased down the street um, with, with like a group of white boys, um, like shouting coronavirus at, at, at him um, like shame. I mean, before the quarantine started, like kids being shamed in the classroom for, or the cafeteria wow. for bringing homemade food, um, and mm -hmm. and others being verbally threatened as well. And so, a lot of us were already hurting, and we Absolutely. just kept seeing how things were getting worse and more dangerous yeah. for Asian Americans in this country. And there was an overwhelming consensus from our community that something needed to be done. So mm -hmm. that very next day, Ray and I began drafting a statement on anti-Asian racism that calls for an immediate end to the xenophobic rhetoric, hate crimes, and violence against our people and communities. And we wanted to invite all Americans to join us in combating these contagions. Um, and it was especially important for us to, to join or link, link arms in solidarity um, with our fellow uh, you know, brothers and sisters, uh, minority brothers and sisters, because what hurts one of us hurts all of us, right? And we're in this together. And so that's equally as important for us. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, there was a lot that we wanted to do with the statement. We, we wanted to speak to both our fellow Asian American community and let them know that we see them, that they're not alone. Uh, but we also wanted to, to, to do call-outs. We wanted to call out anti-Asian racism in the church, in educational systems, in the workplace, and uh, within the language and actions of our elected officials. And so we, uh, we had a, the statement reviewed by a team of men and women after we wrote it, which included Dr. Russell Jung, uh, Helen Lee, uh, Sung Chen Ra, Alex Jun, Margaret Yu, Vivian Mabuni, as well as Jeff Leo and Jay Katanis. And so uh, after that, we released a statement this past Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things I want to say, Michelle, is that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm very far on the, the periphery of understanding what's happening. I've, I received the um, statement to sign it from a couple of different people and uh, was eager yes. to do so and distribute it. But one of the things that I have observed that I just wanted to uh, express my um, respect for is just the, the, um, the way in which you all shout out each other. <laughs> so, oh, um, um, and I, I think that's just a, a good lesson for us all to learn about what it means to demonstrate solidarity within a movement, uh, within a statement. Um, so I've been really, really blessed to see that. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us about the importance of honoring, honoring each other. Right. Um, yeah. What, you know, what are you what are you hoping that um, Asian Americans uh, take away from the statement and, and the, the the kind of the, the mission work to follow? And what are you hoping that non-Asian American people uh, who have signed the document take away from it and how it transforms them? Yeah, this is Ray Chang here. Um, our hope is that the statement would serve as a resource for individuals, organizations, and most importantly, churches on issues that are affecting the Asian American community. And as Michelle said, what affects one member of the body affects all members of the body. Uh, sadly, a negative and harmful racial bias against Asian Americans is, is not a new phenomenon that we're seeing. It's 
It's been a part of the fabric of this country throughout history. Um, Erica Lee, who is an author and historian and a professor, talks about how we're treated differently uh, as Asian Americans, depending on whether we're perceived as good Asians or bad Asians. And when we're perceived as good, as right. many of us have been in the most recent years, we receive more of society's benefits and are often used as wedges against um, other people of color, especially black and brown communities. Uh, but, but, but then when we're perceived as bad as we're being perceived now, we're the target of marginalization, exclusion, mass incarceration, violence. Uh, the language quickly turns uh, from being one of uh, what Sung Chan Ra would call a pet to a threat, which happens across all racial categories when we assimilate right, right. Uh, and give up the things mm. that God shaped into our people and erase the aspects of ourselves mm. that make us unique. We, uh, meaning all people of color, are treated as pets. But then as soon as we show up, mm. uh, we bring ourselves into the room and we speak up at the table, mm. challenging the dominant norms, we're perceived as a threat. And when we are, it hasn't fared well for us. Uh, when we saw the rhetoric around the virus, around the virus, and the way is that it was associated with Chinese people, um, we saw the dangerous patterns of uh, of history basically starting to reemerge. And this was essentially the same patterns that we saw around the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Japanese mass incarceration, where the language we see now, including that of the Surgeon General as of late, uh, connecting the pandemic to Pearl Harbor and 9/11, which both targets non-white populations, uh, the Japanese for Pearl Harbor and Middle Easterners in 9-11, instead of per se uh, right. Oklahoma City bombings or bombing or the mass shootings that we're seeing taking place, which would primarily focus on white terror. You know, those are uh, the, the, the rhetoric is at the early mm -hmm. stages of what we could easily see to a mass quarantine of Asians in America. And so our hope is for the statement mm. to shed awareness on issues and make sure that the church isn't silent on matters that we're called to be a voice in the wilderness to. And then because of the large complexity surrounding race and racism throughout history in Asia and the fact that Asians by and large uh, didn't want to be treated like black and brown people have, you see how uh, Asians actually assimilated in unhealthy ways faster and compromised much more than our brothers and sisters from other communities of color. And we really wanted to reverse that trend. And so we're hoping that the, the AACC moving forward, um, I think will serve as a, as a home and a convening point for Asian American Christians, kind of like the truth table is for, for, uh, for many, uh, black Christians, but also like other Christians of color who want to stand, uh, with black Christians and understand the black uh, Christian narrative. Uh, in order to learn more about the reality surrounding Asian American Christians and that we, we hope that the AACC becomes a place where people can grow in race consciousness, really deepen their discipleship, ground ourselves in the holiness, righteousness and justice of God. And then uh, to raise awareness surrounding Asian American issues uh, and about Asian American realities, so that we don't have to repeat history and create a space uh, for ourselves so that we can bring the fullness of all that God deposited into us to the table that God has set for us. Mm -hmm. That's great, Thank Raymond. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I, I think we look forward to even just learning more and more from the Asian American um, Christian Collaborative. I'm wondering if we can um, bring Russell in as, since you were the one that was doing a lot of the research, I'm curious to know uh, what you saw as you were analyzing the research and compiling um, the data. Can you tell us just um, uh, some of the the um, the, the trends that you were noticing and, and what you want our audience to know. Yeah, thanks. The trends are really striking. If um, I, we noticed early on in January um, when the outbreak began that 
There was a lot of news about Asians being harassed and a lot of xenophobic rhetoric being used. And just from history, like Ray talked about, we knew that Asian Americans were going to get targeted and scapegoated. Um, it's happened in just recently as in SARS, but throughout our Asian American history, we've been scapegoated and excluded. So I began to track news stories and found a 50% increase in news stories in the U.S. about these types of incidents. So I knew it was going on throughout the nation. And then I collected um, firsthand accounts um, through these two nonprofits. And we collected, just like um, the Asian American Christian Collaborative blew up in like two weeks. In the first two weeks of our um, Stop AAPI Hate Center, we gathered over 1,200 incidents. And they're not just small microaggressions, but they're stories of assault, stories of workplace discrimination, stories of um, people being coughed at. My own wife was coughed at. And that's a public health threat at this moment. Yes, yes. So um, documenting the issue, because again, people don't believe that Asians face racism. And we needed, you know, we had to prove to people that we're people of color, that we face racial profiling Mm. like other communities do. And uh, so that's why we needed to document and to demonstrate, especially to public policy officials, um, our concerns and our needs. And then the Christian world is probably even uh, less responsive than uh, our, our politicians. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we um, listening to you talk about the, uh, the re the research, the trends that you're, you're seeing Russell, but then also that, that qualitative narrative, just that small piece about your wife, that impactful piece about right. her, her experience. For me, it's crushing to hear that, um, that dehumanization. Um, and, you know, my prayer and hope is that the statement will, will stir us, stir all of us to action, to concern, to deeper empathy, um, and to praying with our activism as well. Um, but I'm wondering if one of you would be willing to offer a prayer specifically for, uh, you know, the Asian American listeners that I know listen to Truth's Table, um, who have demonstrated solidarity with our work around a table built by and for Black women, would one of you be willing to pray as we as we close out our time together? Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, Lord God, uh, we come to you this this morning and just so grateful for this community, this this solidarity uh, with these sisters at Truth's Table. Uh, we thank you for their heart and the good work that they're doing and just the opportunity to be able to come together as brothers and sisters and uh, for to, for our hearts to break together at, at this, the, the sins in our country, the racism that's spreading, um, that's the... the that the the rise in anti Asian uh, anti Asian racism, but the, the 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 racism that's impacting all people of color, um, and so we mourn for that, Lord God, and we know that that your heart breaks as well. Um, we thank you that you overturned tables for righteousness and justice' sake, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that you laid down your life at that that the the cost of of standing up for for justice and having righteous anger. Um, was 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 the model that you've left for us, and and uh, so we, we we thank you for the ways in which um, you have been able to empower us as well as your servants to to call out um, call out sins, and and we pray, Lord God, that that he who has ears will hear, 
Um, may you may your hand bring radical change uh, first within the church, Lord God, because we as Christians can't begin to be calling out sins within society if we ourselves are not leading that charge in the church. And so we pray, Lord God, um, for for a, a holistic uh, discipleship of your people within the church that um, cares and incorporates and is sensitive to um Asians, Asian, Asian Americans, African Americans, Native Americans, Latin Americans, Lord God, um, may may racism be called out from the from the pulpit and in in their congregations. Um, may you work within the hearts and minds of your people to go out into society to call out these sins in yes, the workforce, uh, in the, in in with our elected officials, Lord God, within our educational systems. Um, you know, may this be a way in which. We show Christ to the people around us. Um, so we commit these things to you this mm. week. Um, we pray for forgiveness and liberation. We pray um, that you will comfort us in our pain, uh, in this pains of, of, of discrimination and marginalization, Lord God. And we pray for healing as well, because we know that when we cry out to you to heal us, that you you are a great healer. Um, so. Mm. Heal our broken hearts and bind up our wounds, Lord God, from the pains of racism and so much more. So we pray this all in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you all so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Russell, for sitting at the table with us. We are appreciative of your work. And Mm -hmm. um, we, of course, are asking um, our sisters at the table to also sign that statement. And so we'll include a link um, to the website and to the statement so that they also can sign as well. So thank you so much for your work. And may God continue to protect you all and keep you. Thank you. We really appreciate the work that you're doing as well. Hey, y'all. So, you know, the three of us at the table, myself, Michelle and Christina, are all anti-racist. As such, we are always trying to slay white supremacy in the name of Jesus. And so we are actually proud to share with you all this book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Wise Rowe. People of color have endured traumatic histories and daily assaults on their dignity. In the new book, Healing Racial Trauma, professional counselor Sheila Rise Rowe exposes the symptoms of racial trauma to lead readers to a place of freedom from the past and new life for the future. In each chapter, Sheila includes an interview with a person of color to explore how we experience and resolve racial trauma. And get this, our very own Michelle Higgins is an endorser of Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Wise Rowe. And of course, Sisters at the Table get a special discount. You can save 40% off of Healing Racial trauma when you order at ivpress.com using the promo code truth 20 the offer expires on september 30th don't forget to use your promo code tell them we sent you by using the code truth 20 at ivpress.com to get 40 percent off of sheila wise rose new book healing racial trauma the road to resilience All right. And we are back. Uh, You know, we had the privilege, of course, of speaking to um, our brothers and sisters who put together the Asian American uh, um, collaborative document about anti-Asian discrimination. And we thought it was important for us to, um, after the break, to come back with some of our friends at the table to actually speak about what 
has what has been their own experience, what is their own narrative, um, and 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 why they're at the table. And so we are honored uh, to bring to the table Jane Kim. She is a friend of the table. She is an educator. Born, raised, and based in Queens, New York, she is passionate about issues of culture, social justice, accessibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She earned her BS in human development from Cornell University and both her master's as a reading specialist and her master's of education of the deaf and hard of hearing from Teachers College in Columbia at Columbia University. We are also joined at the table with Timothy Isaiah Cho. He is the associate editor for Faithfully Magazine, a publication centering on Christian communities of color. He received a Master's of Divinity from Westminster Seminary, California, and writes regularly on topics related to racial justice and equity, social justice, and Christian engagement in society. Welcome to the table, Jane and Timothy. Thank you for thanks. having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really glad that you all are here. I think um, it's. I think it's easy to talk about topics instead of, instead of engaging with people. Um, and so thanks so much for coming on and recording this at the crack of dawn this morning, by the way. Come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is why you're going to hear me sound like Barry White right now. Um, so it is what it is. But so, so E gave, gave us uh, some of your, you know, your academic and your, your work cred. But I wondered if you would be uh, kind enough to share with our audience just some of your story, who you are in a nutshell, um, some of your narrative of how do you get to this place in time. And so, Timothy, if you want to go first, go for it. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Yeah, so I am a uh, Korean-American Christian. And um, a little bit of a backstory um, that's interesting. Um, Both of my parents actually... Um, emigrated from South Korea to South America when they were in their teens. And they grew up there for about a decade. And then they moved um, to the United States, met each other, and then got married and then had me. And so um, in terms of my upbringing, it's been kind of a weird upbringing because I'm still within the broad umbrella of being an Asian American. But culturally, there's a lot of interesting interplay going on between three cultures, three languages. So my parents are trilingual. Um, Mm. I'm not, so I never, I didn't get that blessing, but, um, (laughs) but that's been interesting for me as someone who in my own lived experience um, as an Asian American, it's been interesting to see multiple cultures at play. And I think what's interesting is even conversations about what Asian American even is sometimes forgets this perspective because I've actually met a couple others who have similar stories where their parents also went moved to Brazil or to Paraguay or to Argentina and then they were born in the states and so it's an interesting um, you know thing a, a narrative that isn't really talked about but it's still an interesting story in the Asian American circles and so um, besides that um, grew up in the uh, Korean American uh, Presbyterian church denomination, uh, but I didn't really get to know Jesus until college. And so I'm um, walking with him. He's been faithful to me in so many ways. And um, yeah, uh, married, have two kids, um, wonderful little boys, and, you know, enjoying as much life as I can under quarantine. <laughs> right. Hi, this is Jane. Um, I also am a Korean American Christian. I was 
um, born and raised in New York City. I've lived my most of my life in Queens, New York, which is the most linguistically diverse place in the whole world and a very, you know, diverse place in general. Um, so I kind of grew up in a New York bubble, if you'd say. Um, you know, I've shared stories where um, I've gone to other places and like did not realize the rest of America is not like New York City. Um, and that was, you know, a shock as I grew up, but, um, kind of similar to Timothy, I grew up in a, um, Korean, um, immigrant Presbyterian church. And then as I got older, um, you know, just different, um, I guess, uh, I was able to come into different, uh, faith backgrounds. And, um, so I grew up, um, in a pretty diverse setting. And, um, I continue to work in Queens as well at a, at a school for the deaf here. And, um, yeah, I grew up being exposed to different cultures and, um, having those kind of cross-cultural friendships, um, has really been such a blessing for me to, um, know the different lived experiences of different people. Cause oftentimes you can end up in kind of what is like an Asian American bubble or, you know, mm-hmm. more specifically a Korean American bubble. And, mm-hmm. um, as I've gotten older, um, it's been just such a great value added to my life to be able to constantly work towards bursting that bubble and, um, just being able to form just deep friendships and relationships with people um, beyond my ethnicity, beyond my race, Um, which is interesting because when I grew up, um, so my mother, um, she raised me on her own. And um, so my life was either, you know, home, church, and then school. Um, But while she worked, because she worked very long hours, um, I have who were my neighbors at the time. Um, I call them my aunt and uncle. And so my aunt is a Colombian woman and my uncle is, you know, an Italian American world war II vet, you know? And, um, so I also was raised under their kind of, um, guidance and cultural lenses. So my childhood experience was definitely interesting and it plays into how I live my life as an adult now. Mm. That's um, really, really, um, both of you all have a very, very interesting um, upbringings that kind of that took you out of, you know, your um, what most of us. Right. We can tend to have an insular world right within our um, ethnicity. uh, But it seems that God has providentially um, put you all as insiders, but outsiders, you know, at the same time. And so so you have a different vantage point you know, um, from which to understand probably racism, your, to interpret your own um, experiences. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, obviously, from, from both of you, uh, to find out uh, just maybe your own experiences with racism or how you all became um, passionate advocates um, with regard to, uh, it's not just anti-Asian racism, but you all are passionate advocates about racism, um, even against other communities, but specifically, uh, you know, where, where is your own, um, you know, I guess place at the table, um, in this conversation with regard to anti-Asian, um, discrimination in the age of COVID-19? Um, well, you know, as I'm even thinking about my own upbringing, what's really interesting about racism is, uh, racism really doesn't care <laughs> about distinctions and nuances of, you know, where people are from, where their mm-hmm. parents came from, where they immigrated from. And so, 
you know, when it comes to anti-Asian um, racism, uh, it really feeds off the fact that it really doesn't care whether you are a first generation or second generation, two and a half, um, any of those things. Pretty much if you are a target, right, of racism, you will be treated in a certain way. And so, you know, that's something that for me, um, I grew up in Southern California um, in, a, in a town that was probably about 50% um, white, 50, uh, maybe like 49% um, Hispanic, and then, you know, very small sprinkling of um, Asian Americans. And so all the way through grade school, um, much of junior high as well, I was either the only or one of very few Asian Americans. And so it was a very interesting sort of um, experience because no matter how I would explain myself or how I would look at myself or how, whatever I thought of myself, my own family story, it really didn't matter. Right. Um, the way that you were treated or even the subtle things, the, you know, the microaggressions, those kind of things, um, happen no matter what, um, there's no, no one really peeled below the layers to find out who you really are. Um, right. Right. And so, um, so for me, actually, it's been interesting because maybe it might've been as a defensive, uh, mechanism for me, but growing up, I did my best to try to be as invisible as possible racially, and so that was just kind of my way of, um, you know, trying to kid myself, probably most more than likely, um, that um, if I do well enough in these other things and these other ways, and if I'm as assimilated as possible with the general broader culture, then I won't receive that sort of stuff, that sort of racism anymore mm -hmm. yeah. um which mm -hmm. was really naive but at the same time i can understand myself you know being you mm -hmm. know uh a grade schooler um the only or one of the only asian americans in my school uh i can understand why i was doing that and so that was something that uh you know i kept with in my head just trying to keep my head down low um mm -hmm. not really think about these things don't rock the boat at all until about college um you know and i came to know jesus in college and it was in college actually so this was in um uc berkeley um which is to a lot of people surprised where a lot of people become christians um and including myself and that's where i got into contact with a lot of asian american christian fellowships a lot of christian campus ministries and churches mm -hmm. and just seeing the broad diversity of people coming to faith in christ with a passion and um, this is when I also started to think about, um, as I graduated from college and went on to seminary, I had wanted to serve in the church in some sort of uh, pastoral ministry sort of capacity. And so one of the things that I was able to do was actually serve as an intern at a church. And one of the jobs that I was given was to fill pulpit supply uh, preach in places where they don't have a pastor, where they need mm -hmm. someone to fill it. And one of the really great experiences I had was to preach at a all black uh, OPC church in on the East Coast, which is wow. uh, unheard of. I don't know if the where church is, is still. Where is it? <laughs> hey, there's always somebody out there. There's always a remnant. <laughs> so that was. So that was. Uh, an enlightening experience for me because it was so, it was so wonderful to be with those brothers and sisters there, but it made me start thinking, why isn't the denomination, why aren't these kinds of churches, you know, reformed conservative evangelical churches, why aren't we more like this, right? Where are all of our brothers and sisters? And so as I started asking those kind of questions, um, I really got a lot of resistance. Um, people started, you know, 
punting that question. People started to be really defensive about why. And I started to realize there were, were things going on, a long history that's really parallel with American history of systemic racism, things that have blocked pe- uh, you know, people of color um, from these churches and positions of leadership. And so that was kind of where I first started realizing even, you know, I started realizing, like, I can't just be silent anymore. Uh, these are things that are mm-hmm. impacting the church. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you know, a lot of other people will realize it's always, it's been that way for many, many, many years. But for me, that's where it really hit home of seeing this is something that affects the church. Um, Jesus is not pleased with that. And I, as I dug into it more, I, I started to see... Um, with anti-black uh, people of color, you know, receiving racism, um, how I fit into that story as well, um, mm-hmm. and my own mm-hmm. experience, and realizing I can't um, advocate for, you know, racial justice only for Asian Americans, but it, we're all in this together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any sort of injustice happening to one group, it it affects my group too. (laughs) And I think that's where it's really, so it's always been, it's shaped me in so many ways as a Christian, just seeing it from the church perspective of the church of the need to speak out against these things and to Mm. stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. My journey's a little interesting. I would say, um, I think everybody, um, is on a different kind of point in their ethnic and racial, you know, journey of just understanding, um, yourself in relation to things. So, um, like I mentioned before, my aunt and uncle are not, you know, Korean. And early on when I was a kid, I didn't grow up, um, in like, like a predominantly white, um, setting like Timothy did in New York city. I feel like, um, my elementary kind of journey was where it was what you had as like, at that time, a picture perfect, um, image of what a melting quote unquote melting pot class should look like. And so we had a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and so um, in a way that kind of was a bubble for me, but early on, you know, um, I encountered racial slurs um, as even with other Asians in um, the school that, you know, that doesn't protect you from racism, obviously. And, um, and I would notice that even as a child, the, um, way my mother would be treated if she showed up at school versus if my aunt or uncle picked me up. Um, my aunt, although she's Colombian, she's pretty fair skinned. And, um, so I just automatically saw like the different treatment and how, how I was treated and how they were treated, depending on who showed up at school to pick me up, um, or, you know, showed up at a school function. Um, and then as I, you know, grew up, um, I feel like I was more um, in that kind of Asian American bubble, even in school, because you kind of gravitate towards towards where you feel safe and where you don't have to explain yourself. So um, my kind of journey was a little bit later on. Um, I feel like after 9-11 hit, um, the climate in New York City was just radically different. And so what was kind of more apparent, at least within school hallways, was a lot of anti-Muslim kind of racism that was more kind of in your face and that everybody picked up on. Um, whereas the other forms of racism were more interpersonal and, um, you know, it happened, you know, between like one or two students or, you know, a small group. Um, and then I went to college, um, and 
as I became, um, as I started studying to be an educator in grad school, I came back to New York City. So I, I kind of maintained this New York City bubble, kind of very naive and oblivious to how the rest of America was living. Um, I would hear, you know, things that happened to Koreans or Asians um, in, in the world, but I wasn't really in tune with the rest of the world. Um, and then as I entered the education field, you know, the education field in America is predominantly white. So for many years, even at my school, I was one of five teachers of color where our student population, I believe it's 94% students of color, um, from all over New York city. And so as I kept, um, you know, teaching, there would, things would arise and, that I would have to address. And I realized that I lacked a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge of history, a lot of um, knowledge on how to approach different things um, as situations would arise. And so that made me want to go in and study more about what I was missing. And I learned Mm. how whitewashed my understanding of history was. Mm. Um, Even in New York City, I mean, my first Asian American history course was in college um, because I was so, I wanted to, know my history, but it was just never mentioned in all of my um, pre-college schooling. Mm -hmm. Um, So as an educator, I just felt very ill-equipped to be teaching my students because I realized that I was just passing on what I had learned as, you know, a young child that wasn't accurate. (laughs) And so when I started to realize this, it helped me to dig deeper into different resources out there. And then also um, leading the years leading up to the 2016 election were definitely eye-opening for me because we'd have conversations in, um, you know, whether conversations would arise at my workplace or different settings um, where people were starting to say, you know, like, well, all, you know, all these Christians are voting this way. And as a Christian, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, because honestly, and this might sound really weird to people and I might be like a unicorn in this sense. But growing up, I did not know that there were white Protestant Christians. Mm-hmm. I can relate. In, like to me growing up, um, all the white people that I had met were um, either like Irish, Italian, Catholics, or um, Jewish people, or atheists. So I did not know that there was this white evangelical mm-hmm. Christian mm-hmm mass <laughs> um until people were like well yeah like this is what the news is saying and um i was having conversations with non-christians and i was like let me dig a little bit deeper into this um and then i was like oh the rest of the world is not you know or the rest of the country is very different um because all my life you know the christians that i had met had all been christians of color whether they were in the Latinx community or the black community or Asian community. And I'd never met, like, I think I met my first white um, Christian, like evangelical Christian, maybe in college. And then um, like a close friend in grad school. So that kind of was eye opening. And as different, um, you know, very violent forms of racism and even the, um, just all forms of it were starting to flood my um, news feeds um, as the years went on. I realized how how um, silent um, the Asian American Christian community was in my in my small community, and that 
was very hard to deal with for me because I was like, this silence makes us complicit. And mm-hmm. as someone who works in a space every day with um, people who are not predominantly Asian and mm-hmm. these conversations are happening, when I go on Sunday into my Asian bubble, none of this is being discussed. And it was mm-hmm. very hard to reconcile as a Christian. Um, the, like the silence was just really hard to deal with. And so that um, led me to, um, just learn about different things, um, looking into resources. And that's also how I came across True Stable. Thank you for that. Both, both Timothy and Jane, you know, I was thinking, Timothy, you, um, without using the language, I feel like part of what you were sharing was about, um, you know, just kind of this myth of the exceptional minority, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of paralleling that with respectability politics. And those things are, you know, as heavily as they are critiqued and rightfully so, they are coping methods in order to be a part of um, a racist context, a racist society. Um, and yet there are experiences that pull people out of that. And, and usually they are, um, they're usually triggering and painful <laughs> experiences that help people to realize that respectability or the, or the kind of the the minority myth is not going to protect them. Um, and it forces them to a place of maybe internalized hatred or solid outward solidarity. Um, and it sounds like in your narratives, what was created in you was outward solidarity. As you look at this present moment right now, um, the, the uptick of, of anti-Asian racism related to COVID-19, what, you know, what is, um, for those people who are, are likely to lean into respectability or into that, that myth, what do you think will help them to come out of that? And how can our faith be helpful and harmful um, in that process? I think it's important to know history. Um, I think I, as one who had kind of definitely fallen into that model minority myth um, as an Asian American, there is a point I feel like many Asian Americans go through where um, there's a significant point in your life where you realize you're not white. Um, there are different articles out there and, and different essays. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at that point comes at different moments for everybody. Um, and you realize that though um, you had been treated like this model minority, that you, you, you believe that myth for a while until you are treated differently. Um, there was this article or um, piece recently about um, how that model minority myth turns very quickly into the yellow peril, especially in light of COVID-19. And I think it's important to learn history, to learn our history and how we can dig deeper and to know that white supremacy is not just limited to America. That um, way of thinking has really infiltrated a lot of our, um, what we would consider kind of motherlands and our, you know, um, the countries our parents came from. Um, and how that even is passed down to generations um, and to be able to break out of that. Um, I have to say that equipping yourself with knowledge and being able to have conversations with other people um, is very important. I think for me as a Christian to be able to respond to different ways to formulate my thoughts around things, being able to l- listen and learn from Christians of color, especially um, black Christians has been tremendously helpful and such a blessing to grow as a Christian, to realize that um, my ethnicity and my culture does matter in light of how I understand um, scripture and the, and the gospel, that it doesn't exist in some kind of vacuum. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, Jane, you mentioned um, yellow peril. Can you explain that for um, our sisters at the table who may not be familiar with that? Um, Because that was really profound how you say it flips from being the model minority to, you know, yellow peril very quickly. Yeah. So yellow peril, um, it kind of refers to really like this uh, fear, this hatred of what was first the Chinese in in America, of Chinese people in um, the U.S. And then as um, I guess more Asians were allowed into America, that then transferred over into other um, Asian, you know, groups. So, um, right. so first, you know, with those who look Chinese, right, um, quote unquote, look Chinese by you know our East Asian appearance, and then um, and then transferring over to just in general as um, Asians. So um, it. It, Yellow Peril was definitely this feeling um, that was fueled a lot by um, just anti-Asian um, initiatives, um, you know, whether it's the Chinese Exclusion Act um, and just this kind of anti-Asian racism is not new. It's nothing new. Right. I think the same kind of sin continues. It's just the way it shows up is very different. So that concept of, you know, Asians always being treated as perpetual outsiders, always being foreign, um, always somehow having to prove that you're American, um, but you will always have this kind of hyphenated American status. You know, when I introduce myself, like I proudly say that I am Korean American, but there is always this kind of, do I have to say that because I have to put a disclaimer like, yes, I'm American. Oh, but let me explain like what kind of American I am when, you know, um, honestly, you know, you know, people don't always introduce like, hi, I'm a white American. Like nobody says that. <laughs> so there's always like, you know, as, as a person with a hyphenated American identity um, that is imposed onto me. Um, yeah, I know that this anti-Asian sentiment has kind of always been there um, and terminology, you know, has changed, but um, the sentiment still remains, and this concept of that we are the we are them, where it's an us and them mentality, um, which was you know prevalent in you know recent with the um, kind of comments that came out of the White House and just the treatment of Asians as a them. So it's, it's from yellow peril, but also in a lot of anti-Asian sentiments that have been deeply rooted in American history. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. And to add to what Jane said, you know, just knowing our history of anti-Asian sentiments, um, systemic things like, you know, even immigration policies in our country, it reminds us that the things that are going on now with the uptick in anti-Asian discrimination during um, the coronavirus isn't something new. Um, Mm -hmm. These are not caused by the virus. (laughs) The virus has actually it's revealing something that's already in people's hearts. It's already in within the systems that are at play in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and and I'm, you know, I really feel for those who are experiencing traumatic experiences of racism in either in the past or currently, and are trying to cope and trying to, you know, shield themselves off. You know, and I think there's a good place to, to be healthy in that sense. Like we should not be willingly putting ourselves into a traumatic experience as much as possible. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do want to say that 
the history of white supremacy has weaponized coping techniques. And so, you know, when Asian Americans um, tried to, you know, use the idea of the model minority as a defensive posture, as a coping mechanism, which it has some warrant in in some circles of Asian American um, circles, um, it has quickly been mobilized and weaponized as a Mm -hmm. against black other black and brown um, communities mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. why aren't you like these Asian Americans who seem to have picked themselves up, right? Who have mm-hmm. followed the American dream and made it, you know, made it so well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things where we have to realize that we're not just vacuumed off from everyone else, right? We're not living in a vacuum, mm-hmm. but the things that we do, even the unintended things that happen because of our actions or the unintended things that happen because of our silence mm-hmm. has been weaponized by white supremacy. And yes. will continue to, mm-hmm. and so you know, I even think about things like um, there's a uh, a study that came out a couple of years ago from the Harvard Business Journal um, about even people of color uh, just across the board when they apply for jobs, the their names, just the names that they put down on their resumes, will impact whether they'll get a callback for an interview. And this is from people who um, have you know from. African Americans to Asian Americans who don't have quote white sounding names, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know no matter what it's just, even if you have a name you know for me you know um, my my last name just having my last name on a resume automatically reduces the amount of callbacks that I might get for an interview. Yes, yes. And so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways we're in we're in the same boat. So it's 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 one of those things where it reminds me that white supremacy will use whatever it wants to use and not use whatever it doesn't want to use. Right? It'll weaponize. Mm-hmm. Asian Americans and the model minority against black and brown communities. But then at the same time, it'll say, you know, you're not, you're not qualified to have this job just because of your name, (laughs) you know? And I think it's one of those things that we have to remember, like if we um, allow ourselves to be and our intentions and our actions of defense and of coping to be weaponized, um, you know, it, it affects our community, ultimately, it affects all the other communities out there. And we, in a sense, are being used by white supremacy. Yes. Yeah, and um, and I, I love that you brought that um, into play about how um, how the model minority myth is. Well, it is a weapon in and of itself. Um, and it's uh, it's weaponized, of course. Um, it, it's a weapon in that. Uh, you're not allowed to bring your full self, you know, to the table. Um, and you're, you're and really a form of objectification, right? It's all about your performance. It's about how you uh, excel on your job or your studies, whatever it is. And silence. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And then, yeah. And then that's again, then used as a weapon against um, other minorities, particularly of course, um, black folks as you raised here. And so I'm curious about, uh, there's so many things I want to ask, but I'm really curious about, about uh, and we and we'd be remiss not to ask about just the tension uh, between the black community and the Asian community, right? Um, how we've been pitted against each other, um, mm-hmm. yes, by white supremacy, but also just by sinful tendencies, um, uh, and, and just kind of how that has been magnified in the age of COVID, um, with regard to uh, uh, no, nobody's exempt 
from bigotry, right? And nobody's exempt from prejudice, okay? Um, and and just the, maybe the attacks uh, that um, Asian Americans have been experiencing during the age of COVID um, and how you reconcile that, though, behind the backdrop of the... Um, the discrimination uh, that that we have experienced um, from Asian Americans as well, and um, and Asians even abroad. Like uh, New York Times just uh, released an article, uh, and on April, I believe April eleventh, uh, that's titled "African Nations um, and the U.S. Decry Racism Against Blacks in China." So currently, um, African nations such as Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Ghana, South Africa, um, among others, as well as the U.S., um, have. Uh, been reporting um, racial and racist incidents and discrimination against um, Africans and African-Americans in Guangzhou, um, where they've been forcefully detained. They're being blamed for the uptick in uh, the the corona um, virus um, that's beginning to um, begin to, I guess you could say, have a second wave um, right now. And so I'm curious about how you all reconcile um, just the, the very real discrimination and the hate crimes you all are also experiencing um, with the fact that we too, right, have been harmed and discriminated against um, by our Asian American community as well, our Asian community as well. So I think one thing that we really have to uh, um, notice as Asians is that um, here and abroad, anti-Blackness is very real in Uh Asian communities um, and countries. Um, now, I, Asia has 48 countries, so I obviously cannot speak for all the uh, different sure. ethnic <laughs> backgrounds. But as a, as a Korean American and someone who is um, kind of keeps track with, you know, things that happen in South Korea, um, I've always just really kind of um, so. So sorry to go back to South Korea um, and a lot of Asian countries, um, you know, before a lot of this globalization are pretty most mostly homogeneous nations. And then as, you know, globalization continues, you know, different people. So South Korea has become more um, globalized with different um, people from different countries now living in Korea. But um, this concept of anti-Blackness has been prevalent for many years. Um, And so with white supremacy kind of... um, being imported in with um, the concept of white supremacy and how, you know, with Koreans, there is this very um, focused attention on having lighter skin tones and um, whitening creams and all of that um, because, you know, being more Westernized, a lot of plastic surgery for being um, having European features and, and being more Westernized is very, you know, idolized and, this of also what's imported is, you know, media and how African-Americans have been portrayed in Western media that is also then imported. So, and then it trickles down into when you are immigrating here, um, where people take interpersonal kind of um, interactions and it just kind of fuels this um, mentality. And in terms of the fear that is happening, I feel like when there is fear, Um, people look for um, a scapegoat, somebody to blame. Um, And unfortunately it just kind of goes hand in hand with already existing fears that Mm -hmm. um, really are sinful and, and 
should have no place in this world, but unfortunately very have, have a very strong place in this world. Um, and so I had this conversation with, you know, in New York, there's been um, coverage of, so initially it was a lot of um, restaurants and um, Asian markets suffering um, back early in January. So people avoiding Chinatowns, people avoiding Koreatowns. And so the economic hit was um, felt first by a lot of Asian businesses. And then as the virus started spreading here, um, you know, that's when you started seeing footage of people being um, verbally attacked, spit on, physically attacked, um, sprayed down with Lysol in the, in the train. Mm. Um, you know, most recently, you know, um, somebody being doused with acid and just, yes. so um, it has been very painful <laughs> um, to see that. But also, you know, I had somebody ask me like, how do you reconcile that? Because you want to share, you want to put out there that, hey, this is happening to Asians. But then there are people who are also conscious of when you want to share that story, you see that in this situation, um, it was unfortunately a person um, of color. And sometimes it, it was um, a black person who did it. Mm-hmm. And then there's this tension of, okay, I want to share this so that other people are aware, but I don't want to mm-hmm. fuel this narrative right. that oh, you know, the, the, the racist narrative that, you know, all black people right. are like this. And I think, right. and I think that's a lot of what stems from communities being treated as monolithic. Like sure. if one person does this, everybody's like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's been hard because, you know, I had um, a conversation with a white friend and I said, you know, it's been really hard because like this and this happened and I would, you know, state um, like, two news stories of attacks that I felt were, you know, got pretty big like coverage and they'd be like, Oh, I haven't even heard of that. And so it's like wanting to break into that bubble and be like, okay, you need to know about this Mm -hmm. and I need you to stand in solidarity with me. But at the same time, I don't want to share this story because I don't know where you stand in your racial understanding and your journey Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you're, I'm going to perpetuate this really false narrative that you are that you may unknowingly hold on to. Um, and I think for me as, you know, seeing everything that has been happening, it like, um, Timothy, I kind of mentioned before, we kind of grow up to, okay, don't speak up. Don't really, you know, just kind of keep to yourself, just take it in. It's a cultural thing. And, um, I think you do come to a point where it's like, no, you can't stay silent. You have to be able to speak up about this. You have to be able to share the knowledge, um, share facts, share actual information and not, yes. you know, um, lies and, and false narratives. Um, so wanting to share this, but also trying to do it, um, I guess with nuance and with context, um, has been hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also kind of having that conversation with, you know, older generations of because my racial journey, my ethnic journey is very different from that of my mother's. And so being able to talk about different things, like I saw in the news where um, there was an uptick in um, Asians now buying guns. And immediately when I thought of that, I thought of, you know, the LA riots, I thought of Latasha Harlan's. Mm -hmm. And that's where my mind immediately went. I said, that's a, that's a fear that I have. 
mm-hmm. you know, in general. Um, and it is definitely, um, the more you think about it, it can be scary, but I think, um, as Asians, um, all over the world, we really have to wrestle with how deeply is this anti-blackness embedded in our communities and what can we do to really work against that, to decolonize our minds, um, and to also really invest in relationships with people, um, not to tokenize our friendships or not to treat people as like this one person representative of their whole community, but to really do the work, um, to learn more, to learn the history and to really check ourselves, mm-hmm. um, I think is important. Um, and even in the midst of coping, um, I, I truly appreciate, you know, those who have checked in with me and said, Hey, like, are you doing okay? Um, as someone who is used to just kind of dealing with things on my own, I didn't realize I needed that question and kind of like the true stable, like series of you. Okay. Sis like that, like, Hey, are you okay? <laughs> um, that's just really needed. And even with the Asian American Christian collaborative statement, um, I actually found that out through, you know, my friends at the table, um, sharing about it. And so that was just, I just really appreciated being able to find out about an Asian American initiative through black Christians. Mm. Um, was just really powerful for me personally. Mm. That's really cool. That's great. Yeah. I was wondering if we could just spend maybe a a couple of moments talking about the ways that all of us have been impacted by, um, in in the case of me and Akemini, anti-Asian stereotypes and biases. Um, And for uh, both, um, for Timothy and Jane, anti-Black stereotypes and biases. And kind of a a Christian Mm. discipline of naming, of, of taking what is in the unconscious of the conscious and naming the bias, naming the, the sinfulness, the dehumanization of neighbor and casting that away. So mm. uh, I think that's important to model for people. And because I know oftentimes we just pretend like we don't have these things, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yet they live out uh, in our actions, our practices, our policies. Um, and so I wonder if we could just model that in our remaining time together. That's great. See, you want to start us off? Sure, I can start that off. You know, I, um, my earliest memories of interactions with with Asian um, classmates was growing up in Baltimore, where there was not I was not around many Asian students, but I always had a couple of like legitimate Asian friends, not just tokenized friends, but true Asian friends. Um, but also, I um, had a strong so the stereotype that I think I, I held for a very very long time was this um, was this timidity. Um, mm. particularly amongst Asian women, um, broadly speaking, sweeping all Asian women into one category, mm. um, this timidity, um, this being so under the radar um, that they themselves weren't safe for me to be around. Um, mm. I always felt a bit safer around people who were outspoken. Um, and it, it created, I think, uh, a stereotypical narrative in which because I assumed silence, I did not lean in to listen and hear. Um, and so as an adult now, um, repenting of that um, has become more um, important for me to examine um, how the belief that someone is quiet causes us to not hear them at all and not make space for them and not be patient enough for the ways that people communicate differently, even than myself. That's good. Yeah, I think one of the things that was you know, wasn't something that I was proactively, you know, creating as a bias, but something that was 
just from my lived experience of what I what I saw, you know, as someone who grew up in a predominantly mostly white, um, affluent, upper middle class to upper class um, area neighborhoods is you really quickly get conditioned to think that the more white a place is, the safer it is, the better mm-hmm. school it is, mm-hmm. um, the better, mm-hmm. you know, all the, all these sorts of things. And whether you know it or not, you're being conditioned from, or I was conditioned from a very young age to think, um, you know, that um, the more black uh, neighborhood or community was, the more dangerous it might be, the more suspicious it might be, the more, you know, um, you know, uh, education, things like that, which are, you know, untrue <laughs> entirely. Mm-hmm. But that's just how I've been conditioned just with what I had experienced. And so I think that's something where I think it's helpful for us to think about not only what are the active, you know, biases and racism and discrimination that we're forming, but even what are the things that in our experience, even just like who we lived with and who we were around, how did that shape us to understand what it, what, constitutes what's good what's healthy what's safe even and i think a lot of anti-blackness in asian american communities can be found in that where we've kind of Mm. buffered ourselves in a way Mm. um and we've have our our idea of the american good life has been so closely positioned with whiteness and white neighborhoods Mm. that we are that's just conditioned us to think that a neighborhood for our own kids or whatever our own families that is in a less white neighborhood might be unsafe, right? Or wrong sort of ideas about a neighborhood just because of that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. How about you, Jane? Um, so I'll close this out. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that, you know, stereotype too. I think for me, um, due to kind of things that happened um, personally, I had this stereotype of black people, specifically black men being aggressive, um, being mm. aggressors and and um, criminals um, in kind of what is portrayed as like um, the narrative of just prisons and and what is shared in media um, and I was actually um, blessed to have a very diverse um, you know group of teachers growing up and so even if I would meet you know one of my favorite um, social studies teacher was a black male and he would always be the, no, he's the unicorn. He's the, he's, Mm. he's just not like, he's Mm. a special one. And, but everybody else, like, this Mm. is so true. And, um, well, yeah, like look at, you know, all the prisons, it's mostly like, they have to be criminals, you know, and that kind of naive thinking of not realizing how systemic racism is, has been, has always been, um, and how just, just how, um, widely it has seeped into everything um and just this buying into this objectification of um black people specifically black men um was unfortunately something Mm. that i had internalized and kind of that concept of okay i have in order to be safe like timothy said like i have to avoid um i have to keep to myself and and um this yeah it and the only way to really um, kind of break out of that bias was to be able to lean in, learn more, and um, gain knowledge and um, knowing, okay, why why do I see these things? Why are these trends there? It's not because they are inherently, you know, this way or that. It's because of how our society has been set up, how systemic racism is very prevalent, and how it has used different um 
structures to perpetuate its false narrative. Mm. That's really good. Thank you so much, Jane, for sharing mm. that. I mean, and Timothy. Um, yeah. And see, I think for me, for my part, um, growing up in Cali, um, like you, Timothy, <laughs> but but the Bay Bay Area, I grew up in low-income housing. Um, and in that place, um, Silicon Valley, so right down the street from Apple, very interesting upbringing. Um, in that place, it was actually in our low-income housing project, it was actually somewhat diverse. You know, um, quite a few black folks, you know, I did grow up um, with black folks, but I also did grow up with Asian Americans as well, Um, um, uh, specifically Korean Americans and Filipinos for the most part. Um, Actually, some Vietnamese people, too. So I had somewhat of a diverse upbringing. Um, But I'd have to say the stereotype uh, that I um, grew up with you know, or, or, or imbibed, you know, growing up was that, you know, was the model minority stereotype, right? So Asian Americans are um, really, really good um, in, in school and their studies, particularly math, you know, um, and I leaned into that because I sucked at math. So truthfully, there you go. Come on, Timothy. Yes. Cast aside the shame. And so, so, um, so yes, so I, but I really, I, I, uh, I fed into that. I believe that. Um, and there were students in my class that were good, you know, at math. Um, but that's not all that they're good at. Like, you know, um, there, I had to undo that and help. Cause I think when I, when I, when I'm thinking now, it, it is dehumanizing to only see people for what they can um, give you. Right. For what we think they can give us. Right. You know, and so they're, you know, they'd be the ones I want in my study group. Right. You know what I'm saying? But, but that's because, because of my own assumption right, right about right. they can help me, you know? Um, but, but I had to undo that thinking and, you know, and, um, and, and repent, of course, and allow uh, our Asian American brothers and sisters to actually be human um, and not machines. Uh, because um, mm-hmm. when I think about it in that way, I'm seeing them really as no better than my Texas instrument calculator. Right. Uh, I think that's what it was still called. She wanted to take me back to the uh, school days now. But but, you know, um, when I think about it, that's how I, I literally viewed, you know, Asian Americans as just very, very good at academics, very, very good at studies and, and definitely good at um, math, you know, because growing up, um, th- that's what I saw. But that's not necessarily true across the board. Timothy, you just said you're not good at math, you know. Um, so I had to kind of I had to reconcile. You, and you're not the only one. Right. That's not <laughs> That's not good. At and math, thing, right? Come on, represent. You know, so I had to, I had to kind of undo that because there were some, there were things that were reinforcing that stereotype for me, right? There were you know classmates that went to um, Kumon um, during the weekend. Like, I mean, they really really worked hard at it. But it, and, and I think that's the key is that they worked hard at it. Like if you did that too, you probably would have been good at math too. Like you know what I'm saying? So so anyway, I had to undo uh, a lot of that. Uh, and being able to like uh, see folks for their humanity, fully in their humanity, and be able to see their their failures and their successes, and obviously also befriending people um, <laughs> that are uh, Asian as well too, you know, um, helps to kind of undo uh, those those stereotypes. But that was one for sure. I definitely bought into the uh, model uh, minority myth, you know, and so I do confess that right now, obviously, and also. Um, 
you know, repent of that. I think, um, I, I do think, you know, we were talking about some of the fears, you know, you all were articulating your own fears with what's going on with COVID-19 and, um, and what you're experiencing and, and even having the fear of coming out and saying, well, some of these things happen, you know, um, at the hands of black people. Right. Um, I think part of, part of what, where there's fear, there's also hope and at least mm-hmm. my hope. And I think I, I think I speak for the table when I say our hope is that um, some interminority solidarity can be built. I know a lot right. of us think it's a mil- myth um, because sin, you know, and, and and right when people should be standing with you, they fail you. <laughs> like, you know, um, but I think this is an opportunity. Um, and I hope that this episode has been an opportunity for our sisters at the table to learn about the experiences of our Asian American um, brothers and sisters and what they are going through through right mm-hmm. um and so that they so that we can lift up um this community pray um uh, for this community um check our own community right mm-hmm. uh when we oh. hear comments uh when we see videos or we see something that's inappropriate we speak up and we stand up and we say that's wrong that's sinful um that is not a reflective of god's will yeah. um yeah. and intention uh for our community and for their community so i so i hope this my hope is that it would build goodwill in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some ways, we we've taken a bit. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but we've taken a bit of a risk um, by even doing this episode. If you think about it, because there's some black folks that are like, "Well, dude, that would never do an episode for us," you know, or yeah. or when have they really stood in the gap mm-hmm. for us? Uh, but our our um, <laughs> our posture. Our approach is not contingent upon the actions or inactions of our brothers and sisters. Our our posture and our approach is is as motivated by God's grace uh, and the power in the gospel. That's why yes. we yes. speak up. That's why and, we br- and, brought you guys to the table. And all, you know, I was going to say this too. Is yeah. as we as mm-hmm. we go to our clothes. Um, <laughs> where's the, where's and, the organ? <laughs> yeah, you know, one one of the ways for I think all groups to check the health of their community. And this is not just cross racial and ethnic lines, but also the, the community of the church mm-hmm. is to think about what our distinctives are. What are we known for? And to mm-hmm. the extent that, you know, we are parts of communities that take pride in a distinctive of being against someone else um, or being anti someone else, mm-hmm. that being a signature part of who we are, that's something to repent of. Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. Versus being, you know, so so my my love for black peoples does not require a hatred Come or on. an apathy mm. towards anyone else if it's truly love and not Come pity on. and idolatry yes. towards black peoples. And so I think that solidarity is the right response for Amen. people who are secure in their cultural and ethnic identity and even more so um, with the, the spirit of God at work in them. So I'm really grateful for all the people who joined us today to tell and share their story. And I'm praying that it will be a blessing as we can relate to our own stories um, and to, and to grow deeper in our love for each other. Yeah. And if I actually just may add, I think if we can take a posture of where we're so quick to objectify, I think like Kemeny said, if we can Mm -hmm. really make that conscious effort to humanize Mm -hmm. um, people, I think that will lead us to more love. Come on. And we need, love is in need of love today. 
is Glenn Morris in yes. under his tatas. So yes. uh, great, great prophetic theologian. Carry yes, on. yes, yes. No, it, truly. Um, thank you for that. Well, we want to thank you, Timothy and Jane, for taking a seat at the table um, with us. And of course, we want to thank our sisters for sitting at the table with us as well. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts um, about um, our episode, just about um, a- anti-Asian um, discrimination discrimination and racism um, in the age of COVID, you can use the hashtag Truth Table. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Truth Table or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account now, so you can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truthstable is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.